So if you keep your Bibles, turn to Genesis 1. So we continue our fall study of the first 12 chapters of the book of Genesis. You know, sometimes uh, people can help you, but then not help you at the same time. It was a staff person, knowing I was preaching on Genesis 1. On Thursday, I take Fridays off. It was late Thursday, and they said to me, hey, did you know that Jim Newman did a seven-week study on the image of God in Sunday school recently? And I said, oh, he had seven. I'm doing one sermon. Well, maybe I should look at the notes, but then I said, well, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't look at the notes. What if everything I had already come up with, Jim contradicted me? And I had to spend the whole service critiquing Jim Newman. Well, I did look at the notes, and they were really good. <laughs> Thankfully, much of what I prepared to say sounded like Jim's observations, but I do want to tell all of you to take this further today. I would encourage you to get on our website or get on the YouTube channel and take a look at the Image of God class, I think, podcast, the Image of the, the, our, the Stonehill podcast, and look at the teaching that Jim provides. It's very good. It will give you a fuller explanation. So thank you. Amelia, <laughs> not crazy about your timing, but thank you. Last week we saw as Pastor Andrew preached from Genesis 1 that Genesis 1 give us, gives us a foundation for why there is a world at all. We saw that God in his goodness creates this world. He gives structure to the world, but he also fills the world. And this poem... Genesis 1 confronts the atheistic and materialistic understanding of the world and, and instead says there is a purposeful, powerful, and good creator who has brought the world into existence. As Pastor Andrew shared with us last week, this text uh, that, that Moses either you know, compiled or wrote himself or was given to Moses as he writes this out for the people of God, the nation of Israel at the time, it helped the people of God not only understand their world, but also to understand their own place in the world. And these early chapters of Genesis give us, the people of God, an understanding, an identity, a purpose, an understanding of why we are here, why God has made the world, and why God has put us in that world. So today we want to look at a few verses at the end of chapter 1 that help give us an even greater understanding uh, so that we can understand and live out our place in the world, to understand who we are and what we are to be about. And so this morning, I want us to take a look at four pictures. I'm going to give you briefly a big picture of what it means to be made in the image of God. I want to give us two close-up pictures that, 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 that uh, you know, give a little more detail of what it means to be in the image of God. And then I want, we need to talk briefly at the end 
about the restored picture to understand what God is doing in the world now to restore us fully to the image of God. Let's look at the big picture first. Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. You go down to verse 27, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. We, as human beings, are made in the image of God, and what that, what that means for us is that our meaning, our purpose, our identity is directly connected to God himself in the creation of us. These verses here, 26 to 28, it's sort of the end of chapter 1, provides a climactic end of the creation narrative with the creation of human beings. Verse 27, the word create is, is repeated three different times. And I think it's clear from the creation narrative that, that, that human beings are more directly connected to God himself than the animals. It's not that the animals are not important. It's not that the animals don't, you know, in some sense display the creativity and, and power of God. They do. But if you look through the Genesis account, we won't turn there, but verses in 11 and 12, it talks about each according to its kind, talking about how the vegetation it creates after its kind, it reproduces after its kind. It says this again in, in verse 21, and then in verse 24 and 25, talking about uh, the, the birds and, 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 and the, the marine animals and, and even the, the animals that creep on the earth. They, they are... They reproduce after its kind. But when we're told that God said we're going to make man in our image, after our likeness, it's obvious that we as human beings are created after God's kind. It's different. There's a specialness to every single human being. Every single human being in this world has worth, has dignity, has, 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 uh, has an identity and purpose because God has made each of us. And when it says, let us make man in our own image, you can think about a mirror. We, we are like a mirror. We're designed to reflect the beauty and glory of who God is, but we're also then as a mirror to reflect that beauty and glory to others, to the world, to fill the earth with the glory of our creator, whom we've been made in his image. And so we are made to reflect that beauty we are made to uh, revel and be able to relate to that beauty and glory, but then to reflect that beauty and glory in this world. And of course, in verse 28, it says, God blessed them, talking about the human beings. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Get this picture that God uh, wants uh, 
male and female to come together in the context of marriage. We'll look at that next week. But, but, but to come together and then uh, because we're made in his image, we in some sense through procreation can, can fill the earth with other human beings made in his image to fill the earth with the reflection and representation of God and shine that glory, the beauty and glory of God to the world. And this is a staggering description of the value of all human beings. This understanding of who we are as human beings is actually the foundation, the, the Imago Dei, the being made in the image of God, is actually the foundation for the ending of slavery, for the ending of infanticide and genocide. It's the foundation for human rights. It's easy because we look into history and we see the failures of Christians and plenty of failure. There has been massive amounts of failure. But when you read a book like Dominion by Tom Holland, Tom Holland, as he's researching the book, as he's looking at ancient Rome and he's seeing the impact of Christianity on ancient Rome, uh, Tom Holland says in a YouTube clip, when I did the study of how Christianity impacted the Roman Empire, I lost my faith in the Enlightenment. In other words, there's sort of this conventional wisdom that says in the Middle Ages, sometimes called the Dark Ages, it was religion, most specifically Christianity, that fouled the whole thing up, particularly Europe. It ruined everything. And the Enlightenment, which was mostly a secular project, had to come in and rescue the world from the tyranny of religion and Christianity in general. But as Tom Holland did his research, he realized that it was Christianity and specifically the teaching that every single human being is made in the image of God was the foundation for how the Roman Empire, which practiced infanticide, they also practiced abortion, there was slavery, rampant exploitation of all people, particularly women in terms of, of uh, you know, sex slavery. And in all of these areas, it was the image of God, the Bible of all things which led to the overturning of all of these exploitive practices. And that civil rights, modern civil rights, modern human rights, the valuing and protection of life comes not out of the enlightenment per se, but came right out of the Bible, right out of Genesis 1. And I think this, it's obvious we have a dilemma facing our present culture. I mean, on the one hand, if you go to a counselor tomorrow, even a secular counselor, they're liable to tell you you're valuable if you're depressed or if you're upset or your self-image issues. They're liable to tell you you are a valuable person. You're wonderful, you're great. But then if you go to other uh, avenues of, of, of uh, situations, you're gonna be told that you're really no different than an animal. You don't have value. G.K. Chesterton, he wrote a, a, long, a long time ago, but his words are aptly, are apt for today. He talks about when you dissociate yourself from understanding that God has made you, you dissociate yourself from the one who gave you the purpose, 
it leads to confusion, to a loss of meaning, and to a, an irrationality, actually. He wrote this a long time ago. He says, as a politician, the politician will come to a meeting and cry out that war is a waste of life. Then he will go to a philosophical meeting where the philosopher says, all life is a waste of time. Then he'll turn around and he'll go to another political meeting and say, the indigenous people are not being treated right. They are being treated as beasts. Then he will go to a different meeting where he will hear, you're just a collection of, of, of fortuitous chants and you're really no better than the beasts. He says, you'll find people who will write a book on politics and they'll attack people for trampling on morality. Then they'll write a book on ethics and, and attack morality for trampling on men. Therefore, the modern man is in revolt because practically useless. Because by rebelling against everything, he has lost his right to rebel against anything. What the image of God teaches us is that any purpose or identity that separates us from God will inevitably push us to misuse ourselves and others. Instead of allowing our creator to define us, to identify, to give us purpose, we look to all kinds of other things and pursuits and people for our identity. And when we do that, it almost always leads to the exploitation of others and the degrading of ourselves. I'll just take one example of that. Those of you who are married should understand what this means. If you get married to somebody and instead of getting your identity primarily from God and, and him and you put your identity on this boyfriend or girlfriend or now that boyfriend or girlfriend is going to be your spouse. If you put your identity into that person primarily, that's going to be bad. If that person is the person now that must encourage you and validate you and, and make you feel good about yourself and these, that's the one person you look to, that's going to be a disaster. First of all, that person can never do that completely and then you will demand that they do that and you will end up in a cycle in your marriage where nobody can tell the truth with one another because everyone's too scared because if I don't validate you, you're gonna blow up or get upset and the thing will be degraded. Why? Because you've gotten your eyes off of your identity and purpose from God and put it on another human being. It never works. It always degrades ourselves and exploits others. And this is the confusing world that we live in that has disassociated itself from the purpose of the very one who made us. We all understand what it means when you use a tool that's not consistent with the purpose that it's given. I have this nasty little habit with my trumpets. I, I play the trumpet and I don't, I don't service my trumpet uh, the right way. I, I, I don't polish it the way I should. I'm sorry, I am not a good trumpet owner. I'm not a good trumpet player either, but that's beside the point. What often happens to me is, is that I won't grease my slides. These are the, I've got three or four slides on a trumpet and then you can push them out to tune yourself, you different notes you might have to adjust and they, they need to be able to move. Well, mine get frozen. 
Now this is a brass, you know, brass instrument, it's made out of metal. It's, it's kind of important that this thing stays in the same shape. But oftentimes when I find that my slide is, is, is stuck, I will use the wrong instrument. When I was in sixth grade, I was playing the trumpet, my slide, you know, I didn't think to ask my parents about how to do it. And I thought, well, you know what? I'm gonna take an instrument that I think will help this slide get out and get moving. So I got a hammer. And yes, I fixed the slide and put a dent in the slide simultaneously. It's, it's not what it was designed for. But when we, we, we disassociate ourselves from the one person who made us and then gives us purpose and identity, we bring confusion. And in some sense, this confusion that we bring on ourselves in some sense can be actually willful. Read to Aldous Huxley, who was an atheist, who admits he had motives for not wanting to orient his life to the purposes of God. This is what he says. I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning and consequently assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem in pure metaphysics. He is also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do. For myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. The supporters of this system claimed that it embodied the meaning, the Christian meaning they insisted of the world. There was an admirably simply method of confuting these people and justifying ourselves in our erotic revolt. We would deny that the world had any meaning, whatever. Certainly, this notion and this confusion has played out in the world to very, very serious and bad consequences. Well, that's the big picture. Let's look at the two mini pictures of what it means to be made in the image of God. First, there is a relational aspect of being made in the image of God. In Genesis 1.26, again, going back to the text, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And this, in some sense, plural description, it's sort of an initial uh, sort of hint that God, the God of the Bible, is, a, yes, one in essence, but he exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we are made in God's image means that we can relate to God because God himself relates to himself. But also there's a sense in which the being made in the image of God means that we are relational beings as God is a relational being, and we can not only relate to God in theory, but we can relate to other human beings. So there is a real sense in which every single human being, again, I'm not saying every single human being is rightly related to God, but every single human being is a child of God in the sense that he made that child and that child had some capacity to relate to that God and to other people. But of course, this, this should be very important for your own self-identity to know that you're made in the image of God, you're made to know God and to be in community with other people. But this 
should make a big difference in how you treat other people. I want you to turn to James 3.9 very quickly. In James, um, in James 3, James talks about the tongue, the danger of the destructiveness of our words. And in verse 9, speaking of the tongue, speaking of our speech, he says, with it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. If we acted consistently with the idea that every single human being is made in the image of God and therefore has worth and purpose and value, it ought to alter the way we treat other people. Our identity and value as being made in the image of God should give us dignity and identity, but should also motivate us to treat others with that same dignity that God confers on every human being. The reality is we tend to view people as commodities, what they can do for us, what they can do, their looks, their education, their moral character, their success, their prestige, prestige. But God says the value and dignity of every human being is given and is a part of every human being's experience simply because God made them and what they do and how they do it, whether they're moral failures or moral successes, whether they have lots of money or no money, whether they go to a lot of education or no education, every single human being on the planet is made in the image of God. And therefore, that should change the way we treat other people. Andy Crouch wrote a really good book. If you're looking for a book to read, The Life We're Looking For, it's a great book on sort of building community in an age of technology. But he talks about one winter evening where he was at O'Hare Airport. If you've ever been to O'Hare Airport, it's like, it's crazy. There's so many people there. It's, well, it kind of reminds me of Newark Airport, actually. He said that night he had two hours to kill it was crowded, started to walk, and he started to walk through the different domestic terminals at O'Hare Airport. And for some reason, he decided to do something as he walked. He was been recently thinking about Genesis 1, what it means to be made in the image of God. And so what he decided to do as he walked through that airport that night, he tried to look at people without being too creepy, he says. But to look at them a little bit, see them. And as they walked by him, inside he would say to himself, image bearer. He started out walking pretty quickly. This is what he writes. He, he says, I passed a weary looking man in a suit, image bearer. Right behind him was a woman in a sari, image bearer. A mother pushed a stroller with a young baby, a young man, presumably the baby's father, walked next to her, half holding, half dragging a toddler by the hand. Image bearer, image bearer, image bearer, image bearer. After about 45 minutes of walking, I was at the end of Concourse 1. I saw a gate agent was checking in the last passengers on a plane to Fort Lauderdale, image bearer. I walked by at least 200 different people. 
And by the end of the walk, Andy Crouch writes, I was overwhelmed in a way I had not expected. I had passed people in every stage of life and health, of uncountable number of national and ethnic backgrounds, some traveling together, most seemingly alone. And when I thought to myself, these are image bearers, it carried an emotional and spiritual weight that I can still feel even years later. Image bearer, image bearer, image bearer. Is that how you view everyone that you came in contact with last week? Well, that's the first smaller picture. Let me look at the second smaller picture. Being made in the image of God means that we have been given responsibilities to steward the world under his authority. Back to Genesis 1. Genesis 1.26 talks about let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, over all the creeping things. And Genesis 1.28 says, And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the... Uh, I'm sorry, and God blessed them, verse 28, And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. What this means is being made in the image of God means you've got work to do. That God, because you're made in his image, you're designed to reflect his glory and to represent that glory to the world. You have an inherent dignity. You're special. Everyone else around you is special. But he's giving work to do to take the little part of the world that you inhabit and order it under his authority. And what that means is, is that every single thing we do has dignity. All work done for the Lord with this understanding is valuable importance. And yet I think sometimes we disassociate what we do at work or what we do even at home from God's divine responsibility for us. We, we disconnect it and then the work loses its value. My very first job at, um, uh, that I had to go to a workplace other than a paper route, I, I worked at Burger King in Miami, Florida. It was the 25th year anniversary of Burger King, one of the greatest achievements in American history. I was the youngest employee. I was the last person hired. I was given the task of cleaning the dining room. I hated doing it. It was boring, it wasn't cool. I wanted, to, I wanted to be on the Whopper board to make the Whoppers because I thought that was so special. Well, that was a terrible job. I eventually graduated to the Whopper board and I was terrible at it. If you remember back then, okay, this is in the 1970s, you didn't have digital readouts of the orders. The way you heard the order was, a, you know, the, 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 the cashier would speak into a microphone. And you were hoping she would say, all right, we need a Whopper without cheese, you know, and then a Whopper. But that's not how it sounded. Through the microphone of the poor technology in that Burger King, it sounded like this. What is it? The other thing is my fine motor skills were terrible, so my Whoppers looked terrible. It was really, it was nasty. I often thought, who could eat this? All right, well... But I cleaned that dining room for about four months trying to get this big promotion to Whopper board. And I, you know, I would have to relearn this lesson at Chick-fil-A 20 years later. But I really started to see that this was my job and I needed to do it well. And so I cleaned that Burger King. That dining room was amazing. 
Even the regional manager came in one day, and after I mopped the floor, got everything cleaned up after the lunch rush, he looked at me and said, this is the cleanest Burger King in the history of Burger King. To the glory. He didn't say to the glory of God, I should have said that. Everything you do, what you do at home, changing diapers, fixing a meal, helping someone else in a crisis, visiting someone in the hospital, doing your job, your academics, your work at school. All of this is work that God has given you and it has dignity and value and we need to do it as unto him because we've been tasked to, to manage the world under his authority. For some of you, um, it's easier for you to maybe to connect what you do to this command. I would say all of you that are working in science trying to figure out some new insight into the physical nature, that is extremely valuable. But all work is extremely valuable. Cleaning up a Burger King is valuable. Cleaning your room, middle school students, would be a good first step of learning how to manage the world under your authority. I know some of you are working on public policy in grad school even today, and you are in the process of trying to figure out what public policies and how could we frame them that could manage the world's resources, both the people in the world and the environment in an appropriate way that would, would bring honor and glory to God and would, would steward the world in a, in a more effective way. That's God's work. We need to do that work as unto the Lord. One last thing as we close. All this talk about we're made in the image of God, all of that's true, and it's still true, but we all know that because of sin, we've defaced the image of God. We haven't erased it. We're still made in his image, but we've complicated that. And what we need to understand is that the purpose of the world now, what Jesus is trying to do is to, this is what his death and resurrection were about, was to take our sin upon himself and through the power of his resurrection to help restore us more consistently as being image bearers of God, reflecting the glory of God, representing the glory of God, manage the world under his authority. This is what Jesus is trying to do. And in 2 Corinthians 3.18, he says, when we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. It's as we look into the face of Jesus that he begins to transform us so that we can live out the very purpose that God has given us. The purpose of reflecting the glory of God, relating to God in his glory, the, 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 the representing God to the world, and to work and manage and steward the world under his authority. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. I pray for those this morning who are putting their identity in everything but you, Lord, that you would help them by your spirit. I pray for those that may be confused and are putting their identity in their performance rather than in you plus nothing, you would strengthen them. I pray that you would help all of us with all of the things that you've called us to do, that we would begin to connect all the work that we do, whatever it may be, connect it 
to this incredible mandate that we've been given by God himself, who has placed his image on us so that we are valuable, we are special, we, 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 we have dignity and we have worth, and everyone around us has worth, that we would live that out. And then give us grace and strength to know how to manage the little part of the world you have given us authority over so that you would be honored and glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.